Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in with the both of us, first of all, welcome. Second of all, make sure you check out all the content that we put out there on the internet. I tweet about stocks at at Focused Compound on Twitter. Jeff writes about stocks at FocusedCompounding.com. We manage capital at Focus Compounding Capital Management, and we upload a ton of podcasts and investing videos through YouTube. And then, of course, the podcast app on your iOS device or Android. So check out all of our content, 300 episodes. Um, so that's pretty wild. We're like, what, four years into this, three and a half, something like that. I think it was the end of 2017. So that's pretty wild. Um, so thank you so much for being with us on the journey. So in today's podcast, we are going to continue our series talking about Buffett's early investments. We are using capital allocation. Our friend Jacob McDonough so graciously gave us a PDF copy of his book to go over and get the figures of Buffett's early investments with Berkshire. Uh, check out the video last week. We actually uh, went through the process of him actually uh, taking control of Berkshire. And in today's podcast, we are going to be talking about national indemnity. Um, I think this was probably one of the most important acquisitions that he made, one of the most important early acquisitions uh, with Berkshire. Would you agree? Yeah, this is Berkshire's most important acquisition. Why would you say that? And I'll tell you why I think that. Uh, well, this was the move into insurance and away from textiles. That's what I thought. It was his first investment away from a failing textile mill and into something that is really when I think Berkshire, I think float, I think insurance. Mm -hmm. And this was the first step um, into that. And, you know, uh, we could go through, if you're watching on YouTube, I did redact certain things because the last thing I want is for you not to buy Jacob's book. Yeah, the, book the book is in the description. So okay. go support him, amazon.com. It's one of Jeff's favorite books on Berkshire. I love it yeah. as well too. So definitely go check it out. Um, but so 1967, um, that was the year that they acquired the company. Mm -hmm. And in Berkshire's annual report, Buffett wrote, in March 1967, the company purchased for $8.5 million, over 99% of the outstanding stock of National Indemnity Company, and 100% of the outstanding stock of National Fire and Marine Insurance Company, both headquartered in Omaha, Nebraska. Very close to his office, actually. Buffett actually knew the CEO. He was right. sort of, a, I guess you could say, a, one of those uh, high society in Omaha. And I believe that Buffett actually talked to Jack Ringwalt once about investing in Buffett's partnership. Right. But yes. supposedly, now I guess there's both of them, conflicting stories there's conflicting yeah. stories. Um, Jack says that Buffett wanted a $50,000 minimum investment, but Buffett was taking way less than $50,000 right. at the time. And as the legend goes, Jack Ringwalt was supposedly like, I'm not going to give $50,000 to you, right. you, you mm -hmm. kids, squirm, get out of here. And I guess Buffett's secrecy also really put Jack off as well. That's what they said in the snowball anyways. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, it was interesting though. So hearing about how he actually purchased this company, mm -hmm. Buffett knew somebody else that knew Jack and right. Buffett asked this friend if Jack would ever be willing to sell the company. And the friend told Buffett that about once per year, he usually gets cold feet where uh -huh. he thinks about selling the business. He's like, once per year for about 15 minutes. So Buffett told him, next time he starts having those thoughts, call me. 
and we'll get a deal done. So I guess Jack and uh, this guy, I forget his name, they're out at dinner. And Jack said that the cold weather was bothering him in Omaha or something along those lines. Uh And he was talking about selling national identity. And he said, you should call Buffett. And this guy called Buffett. Uh, Jack was about to go to Florida, I believe, for a vacation. Okay. And uh, this guy was going to try setting up a, a meeting for them like the next day or something. And Buffett was like, how about this afternoon? And they met, they talked. And I think Jack had like three stipulations mm-hmm. that he wanted. He didn't want any employee to be fired. Right. That was one. Yeah. Um, he wanted, I think, $15 more than Buffett originally appraised the company for okay. per share. Buffett still did that. Mm-hmm. And then there was another one, which I can't remember. <laughs> Do you remember? From the snowball, I remember that. They, he said, well, you probably want me to sell you my agencies. Yeah, right? that's what I said, wouldn't even dream of it. And he said, no, 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 you know, which is how they source the business and stuff. And then he um, and are almost always sold with the insurance company. And then um, he also said, you know, I'm sure you'd want an audit or something. And Buffett's allegedly Buffett said audits, are, you know, those are the worst kind of financials. I hate audit financials. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So whatever, he, you know, he wanted to make the deal happen. Yep. Mm-hmm. So basically it worked. And he did not want Jack to get cold feet, and he did, I believe, actually get cold feet. But they said that he's, a, you know, he's a man of his word, and he went through with it. And um, he bought stock in Berkshire Hathaway too. Yeah, he which, apparently he used the money that he got to buy stock. Yeah. yeah so that obviously that uh, you know played out well for him. But Jack continued to run the company. So this is like Buffett 2.0 mm-hmm. in like the best fashion ever. So he has a great business that he really likes, and the CEO that sold out to him stayed on and you know continued to run the business yeah i forget how long i don't know if it tells you in the book but 10 or 12 years later so there was someone else running it but he did run it for a while yeah um so i have here that the company had 19.4 million in float around the time of the acquisition okay so obviously this term float is talked about a lot in the Mm -hmm. investor community because of what buffett has been able to do with it i mean you actually sent me a an article from Bloomberg last week when he was going to invest $9 billion in the Texas grid for like electricity right. or natural gas. He wants to, yeah. Yeah, and he's trying to get a guaranteed rate of like 9.25% or something mm-hmm. like that. And I think my response to you was, you know, for a, a uh, basically free money that he has with the float. That's mm-hmm. like a pretty crazy spread, but very Buffett-esque. Um, but so the business... You know, this was the first step that Buffett went with capital allocation to really get away from a failing textile mill. So, and we have some of the figures up here right now. Um, is there anything that sticks out to you? This is from 1955 to 1965, and the acquisition, like I said, was in 1967. Um, so, national indemnity. I think the things that stood out to me about it were um, you have the, uh, let's see, the premium numbers, the revenue numbers. Yeah, net income, so underwriting gain, investment gain. Let's see where we have with loss ratio. Yeah, the loss ratio is fine. I mean, we could get into the interest rates at the time and things like that. It was okay. It was fine. Um, But what is interesting is the amount of uh, premiums that they were writing versus their equity and things like that. And, And Jacob gets into more detail about this later. But as being part of Berkshire, it was easier to handle large amounts of um, premiums versus equity. Berkshire really, as a company, when you count the entire company together, not just the insurance parts of it, because the other parts of the company kind of gave strength to the insurance companies over time. Um, 
rarely wrote premiums in excess of 100% of equity, usually mm-hmm. less, which is not very aggressive at all for an insurance company. But it allowed the insurance companies to be pretty aggressive in how much premiums they were writing. Um, what I like what Jack said was that there's no such thing as like bad risk taking. It's just bad prices. And I really think yeah. that is sort of like uh, the quintessential example of the type of insurance that they would write and stuff like that. And, I mean, and even Buffett to this day, too. I mean, everything he does is, is all based around like handicapping. Yeah. So national funding is different from something like Geico did not have a direct um, business, worked through brokers, and um, did certain special risks and uh, things like they talk about in the snowball. They did, they insured, um, I mean, they insured all sorts. They would insure almost anything. But uh, a significant part when Berkshire got into it would have been uh, auto, I think, although I think they also did taxi and some different kinds of auto. So some different like non-standard and special stuff with auto. But um, they mentioned in the snowball doing um contests and things like that mm-hmm. right like uh you know finding things that are hidden you know so, yeah, yeah yeah and we were talking in the car on the way over my favorite one that they did was on the bootlegger i guess mm-hmm. someone died and his wife wanted to take the capital out of the checking account or something along those lines and you would have had to have wait seven years and what jack did was he went to this guy's lawyer and basically he was was part of the deal and he's like well if he's going to source the deal or put his capital in it um i'm sure this bootlegger is actually dead because the right. lawyer couldn't say whether he was or not because of client attorney privilege yeah so the, so in that case it was uh was it that the bank wanted to make the allow the withdrawal and be insured against the possibility that he'd come back I think so yeah Something that's what like it was that, like yeah. to release the funds yeah so you know strange risks like that you can see in directories of insurance companies still to this day that national dummies listed under a bunch of odd risks um, you know, that they, they sort them by what kinds of things that they'll cover. And National Diamond shows up a lot under uh, unusual sorts of things that, you know, there's only a few other companies that write it. Mm-hmm. So in 1965, the company had $883,000 in net income. And yeah. as I did say, he paid, um, uh, what did I say? It was $8.5 million. So call it, you know, 10 times earnings for this company. Right. But he has a very interesting way of looking at it, which is that it doesn't matter um what the book value of the company is that's not part of the price i should say um basically his view of it buffett's was that if i'm giving you let's say your book value is five million dollars i'm giving you five million dollars um that is just swapping my assets i'm giving you five million dollars in cash to put then it goes right back into bonds and stocks which i would own anyway because now i direct the investment so it's only the goodwill portion that matters and so that's the part he has to assess and i think that's a very smart way of thinking about it Mm -hmm. if you look at the float from 1955 to 1965 it grew from 1.9 million to 13.3 million Mm -hmm. 21 percent kager over those 10 years yeah yeah It, it had pretty good underwriting results not like amazing underwriting profits but it was able to write at um basically costless to Berkshire over time while growing a lot, you know, and that was a big part of it. The growth part of it was very big compared to other parts of Berkshire. The insurance business grew a lot. You can see that because Berkshire as a whole was only growing by about that amount too. So it grew in line with Berkshire basically in terms of their growth and their book value and their uh, stock price and all that. What are the things that insurance companies, I guess just from your experience, and we should do more podcasts on insurance companies because that's Mm -hmm. probably one of the most common questions I get asked is if it's not banks, it's insurance companies. Um, what are some things that they do that like allow it to be like the profitable underwriting and stuff like that? 
Oh, um, like the, what matters in insurance to you? So a few things. One, they talk about it a little in the book. Berkshire had lots of problems in insurance, and they get into some of the ones. Uh, good people skills, um, understanding. So, for instance, uh, a lot of times people talk about fronting arrangements and things like that. You have to be careful of things that have to do with all of um, how you source the business that you get. So this is not a direct business. So when I talk about direct business, like half of prog- – I don't know if it's half anymore, but – uh, part of progressive business is direct. That's the ads you see that say, call us up, go to our website. And then part of it is indirect. It's th- distributed through agents. So for car insurance, you know, it, it's pretty simple in terms of what you're figuring out. So it's kind of like, are they right? It's just like a loan. Is it a conforming mortgage or not? And evaluating that. But for things like you can imagine with national indemnity, where they're doing all sorts of different risks, it becomes a bigger issue if the agent is misrepresenting things to you. And sometimes you have people, um, which I mentioned with the agency stuff, who can bind you to certain risks and things without you being able to stop them necessarily from writing business that quickly. There's fraud risks. Uh, I invest in some things that had success, and uh, they had very big losses from fraud. Um, Basically, being scammed was their claim is what happened. I don't know if that's exactly what happened. But, um, and you know, they probably thought they were doing something relatively low risk and it turned out to be very high risk. And that's because the incentives for some people are to make a lot of money from that. Um, So those are important parts of it. Growing fairly slowly, having better knowledge of the lost things that we were talking about, avoiding certain businesses that are growing rapidly and following what everyone else is doing. Um, I'd say insurance compared to other things has a higher risk related to fraud and higher risks related to who's bringing you business. Um, Berkshire ran into some of those. And then there's also things of watching trends to understand what trends are happening. So I mentioned before, like um, in auto, watching what's happening with phones, if phones are causing different things to happen. Um, with uh, universal insurance in Florida, I mentioned litigation trends. So are juries awarding more money to people? Um, that's a big thing in trucking right now, right? So there have been more very big awards for people who were killed or paralyzed or whatever from accidents involving trucks, which would be very harmful to those companies and might result in some problems with getting insurance for smaller trucking companies and things like that because there's just a much bigger risk that there'll be a big verdict. Um, Buffett talked about that a lot in the 70s, social inflation. He talked about it being bigger and bigger awards from juries and things like that. Um so you have to watch those sorts of trends and be realistic about them. You know, the quote from National Debt, you know, Jack Ringwall, basically that there's no um, bad uh, risks. It's just bad prices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then Buffett comes in and Jack continues to run the business. And in the snowball, they talked about he was paid very well to do that. Mm-hmm. How did the business just grow so much from there? Well, but Berkshire tried to grow all of its insurance businesses. And um, National Indemnity was successful in growing. Uh, I mean, I don't know the details of how it did, but like I said, it used brokers. Um, they could place some unusual risks with it. Once it's successful, you can get more business. You know, once you can grow your capital, Berkshire had other sources of capital to rely on, so that um, it's not. It's not necessarily good or bad um, to have an insurance company in other businesses, but what it does do is smooth things out. So Berkshire being in in other businesses 
does make it easier to put more capital to uh, to write more business after a tough time for the industry and to write less during a good time for the industry and not worry that much about it. So you can kind of react less cyclically with the rest of the industry, you know, um, if you have a diversified bunch of other businesses, which Berkshire did at that time. Um, and then they went heavier into stocks, you know. Do you think insurance is like banking in how you, you like banks to be a little bit more targeted, I guess you could say? Yeah. More regional, more um, specialized. Mm -hmm. There's sort of two things, I guess, that way. Same with banking and insurance. Um, I think you can have advantages in efficiency. You know, they literally call it efficiency ratio in banks, but distribution advantages and stuff with direct distribution, um, progressive, Geico, USA, things like that, and insurance. Um, and so low costs that way. But then also you could have advantages in terms of loss experience, um, understanding what kinds of things you're writing. And I think that's not very useful to have a lot of knowledge of life insurance because I think it's fairly easy to price. But on the other hand, um, some of the insurance we're talking about, special risks that we're talking about with these things are harder to figure out. And um, yeah, it, it's good to focus in on those specific things. Uh, Is that because it's hard to price and because you think yeah sometimes the probability of certain events happening is just de minimis yeah like i'll give you an example there the, in all companies use insurance uh, basically all companies use insurance for directors and officers i don't know that berkshire does they might be one exception but everyone else does and um so it protects them against doing some bad things basically being personally liable for that stuff um and uh SPACs need them right so insurance rates for a SPAC though are incredibly high versus other forms of going public and just in general other companies. So if you were taking the average company that needs directors and officers insurance and you were taking something that was intended to be created as a SPAC from the beginning, if you write at the same rate for the SPAC, you're going to have a really big problem because the amount of losses that you could have eventually with lawsuits and all that legal expenses you could have to pay doing those things could be really big. So you have to be able to differentiate between those and their cycles, right? So like three years ago, how much insurance was there even to be written in that entire area? Now it's a pretty big area of insurance. So you have to be aware of where you are in that cycle, whether you should be writing a lot. A lot of times you can write the most at the very time when you shouldn't be, right? Mm -hmm. People need it the most now. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. As I say, do you think the best time to write hurricane insurance is after a hurricane? It can be, sure. But, you know, with weather things and stuff, to be fair, companies do generally understand that that, I mean, investors may not understand it as well, but they do understand that's basically random stuff. Um, what's different and what I worried about with the universal insurance thing is is their reinsurance stuff because of low, um, uh, because of low rates and things like that, low returns on assets everywhere. Was that causing reinsurance to be available at more, attractive rates than it should have been um in other words in a normal interest rate environment a normal environment for stocks and bonds and all that would people be putting less money into capacity for reinsurance i think they would be and so i think prices would be higher so they kind of benefit in the early 2010s probably from that um which had nothing to do specifically with insurance uh with um hurricanes so you have to be careful about that kind of stuff you know mm -hmm. yeah he was talking about this in uh 2017 I don't know if this come yeah it was from a letter to Berkshire shareholders 
how they paid $8.6 million in early 1967. With our purchase, we received $6.7 million of tangible net worth that, by the nature of the insurance business, we were able to deploy in marketable securities. It was easy to rearrange the portfolio into securities we would otherwise have owned at Berkshire itself. In effect, we were trading dollars for the net worth portion of the cost. Yeah, and I say that to people all the time. Um, you know, Buffett was able to do it because he was able to control investment decisions. Only Geico, Geico was the only one where he didn't control the investment decisions. But um, when people ask about that, like with buying some company uh, that's in insurance stuff, you know, you have to look at their portfolio. In a lot of cases, their portfolio might not really be that different and that inferior to yours than how you would invest. The same thing is true when a company has excess cash. Um, excess cash can mean a lot of things. It could literally mean cash, but I've seen companies where almost all their excess cash is in mutual funds. And people have said, well, why would I want to own something that uh, is just letting cash sit idle? It's not letting it sit idle. A mutual fund owned by a company is probably going to get similar returns to you. You're probably, you know, as an investor, going to get similar returns to a mutual fund. And so it same sort of thing here. You know, we talked about investors, title insurance. Um, they're mostly in bonds, but they have a lot of equities. And so if you had a similar portfolio, then you really only need to worry about the goodwill portion. One way of looking at it is that you're allocating much more to bonds, probably, than you would with your own portfolio. Um, but Buffett moved things here from bonds to stocks. And later in his career, he did something where he bought Gen, Gen Re, um, And a big part of that was probably so that he could get out of a lot of stocks and into some bonds because they were heavily in bonds. And so that allowed him to swap out. So the problem is when you're looking at insurance companies today mm -hmm. is that there's only one Warren Buffett. So okay. it's like you care about two things with um, insurance companies, right? Mm -hmm. So the type of underwriting they're doing right. and how they're doing that. And then who's at the helm, you know, when it comes to capital allocation. Right. So it's like, how do you judge an insurance company like in today, uh, like at the present, how do you judge the capital allocator when it comes to that? I can't think of examples where I've liked the capital allocation really in the way of like Berkshire. Um, it's fairly, it's either, sometimes it's very safe, which is fine. And then they can focus on the underwriting when success with that, they can get okay returns. Um, you know, you get the returns of the market. I wouldn't expect returns different from that. Berkshire is a very rare example where, you know, you had an insurance company that made money that beat the market. That's very hard to do because of the way that a culture and insurance company works. Um, there's a temptation to report earnings uh, and to own bonds when you maybe shouldn't necessarily own as many bonds as you do. There's a temptation to pay out too much money in dividends early on. I've, I've kind of talked about that. I mean, you should really not decide on a dividend payout ratio or something like that based on what investors expect. You should decide on it based on your financial strength and how that helps your insurance business. So if you if it would help you to have a higher rating um, and to have more capital and uh, surplus and things like that, then probably you want to be building it up. And then at another time, you might be wanting to pay out special dividends and things like that. And a lot of times they don't. They pay more regular dividends, which aren't necessarily the most helpful thing. And they don't get their rating up as high as it should be early on. And then they may um, not pay out as much as they should later because they target certain growth rates and payments. And, you know, it, I mean, a lot of times they'll even say our investors like that we pay dividends and things like that. And, you know, but it's the same thing as a bank. Most banks pay regular dividends that people like, and that's fine if growth is very predictable. Banks are more predictable than um, 
in any given year. Banks are more predictable than most insurers are going to be. So insurers probably would benefit more from like paying out special dividends and things like that. How Buffett did it is he built up capital at times and then he would make a really big bet, right? So he would let things sit idle and then he'd do really big deals. That's always hard for people to see and uh, be okay with. The Berkshire is kind of the only company I can think of where they're, the investors stand by and don't mind that and know he'll eventually do a really big deal. Most companies are going to be bothered that you're holding too much capital, mm-hmm. which Berkshire did sometimes. They held a lot of capital, but then they would suddenly do a very big deal. In this early part, they actually, in the 60s, they actually did several big deals in the first few years um, and pretty pushed their capital pretty hard. You know, like they borrowed money to buy things and, and did all that. How would you judge the reinsurance part of a company or just a reinsurer in general? Mm. Depends. Uh, I think I haven't liked reinsurers as much as other people because it's it's kind of complicated. In some ways, there's low barriers to entry. There's low barriers to additional capital in the industry. It's not really low barriers to entry like you could just start up any random reinsurer um, because you do need to have a people need to have a belief that you will pay under any circumstances, but it is not hard to add capital. And then in theory, it shouldn't be hard to take capital out of the business either. Um, but maybe that doesn't happen as quick as it should. Um, so for a long time, I felt that, you know, it's not that attractive a business, but you know, Berkshire's big, um, a lot of its big part in reinsurance, cat reinsurance and all that. We're going back like 20 years, not like today. So that's part of it. Um, for Berkshire, I think it was a very successful part of the business, and it's probably the only thing they've started from scratch that was successful. Um, they tried to do lots of other things in insurance. If you look, they started reinsurance and were successful with that, but everything they did with uh, primary insurance stuff, starting it up, for the most part, wasn't that successful. I mean, I think Jacob goes into some of the details there, but they started a lot of companies that lost money and then eventually were shut down that or that never really grew into much of anything if you compare that to how national indemnity did and how um reinsurance did they were a lot more successful with that um so i think and reinsurance really took off when they added a g chain you know but even before then they were trying they were doing stuff with reinsurance as an idea of what to do the very first reinsurance stuff was just to add to the the amount of underwriting that um national indemnity could do by taking reinsurance on their own uh primary insurance stuff that they were doing then you could have a separate subsidiary do that and you see that with some other companies sometimes berkshire was doing it because the overall company has so much capital versus national indemnity so that was a way of doing it but then eventually they took re- uh, they did reinsurance for other people yeah, a lot of people always ask about Progressive because you have the report on the company and we've talked about it a bit on the podcast. Yeah. So Progressive is similar to Geico and has some similar national indemnity. Um, Progressive takes very little investment risk. It takes a lot of underwriting risk. So it's very similar to like what you have to watch out for is what happened to Geico in the 70s where things fell apart. Um, it pushes its capital very hard, right? So it writes a lot of premiums versus the amount of surplus that it has on a statutory basis, or if you want to call that tangible shareholders equity or something on a gap basis. And um, what that means is you're writing several dollars of premiums for um, 
per dollar of equity you have, for example. Then also because your expenses are so low, the potential losses, the losses you expect, I should say, are already very high. So let's say you have a loss ratio of like 70% or something, right? Okay. As an insurer. So that means you expect that you could lose 70 cents of every dollar that you write. Yeah. Okay. Compare that to title insurance that we were talking about. It's really reversed. 70 cents of every dollar is what you're paying out in commissions right away. So actually your losses are expected to be very low. It's mostly a, a operating expenses kind of business. Anyway. So something like car insurance when done directly can have very low expense ratios, but means that your loss ratio could be high. So let's say it's 70 cents. So 70 cents per dollar is what you expect to lose. Okay. Now, if you're writing $3 of premiums for every $1 of equity, right? Then what we're talking about is your gain or loss is going to depend a lot on uh, a matter of what you're aiming, what you're able to achieve in terms of that loss rate that you have. So you could lose, so let's say that you're able to, um, progressive targets a 96 combined ratio. So 96 combined ratio would mean you make four cents per dollar. Okay, four cents per dollar you make, you write three times um, premiums to the amount of equity that you have. That's 12% return on equity pre-tax before any investment results. Then you get your investment results and stuff like that. So that's what you're targeting right away. That's um, many years you have better than that. Some years you have worse than that. But when you think about the loss ratio, let's say, if it is a number as high as like 70, and it can be higher than that, um, that you're normally, that's what you expect to have. And what I mean by that is, let's say that you have a, in, in the case of like progressive or something, if you're targeting a 96 combined ratio and it's a combination of 26 expense ratio, 70 loss ratio, the loss is a very big component of it. So now... If you think about it, a 10% miscalculation on the loss ratio, it turns out to be 10% higher than you expect. It means that's 77% of your premiums. 77% mm -hmm. of your premiums now has you writing at a combined ratio of 103, which is a loss of 12% of your equity. Now you have investment stuff that are offsetting that, but you're gonna lose book value just from doing that. So just a 10% miscalculation can start to cause losses. With um, a large diversified amount of auto insurance, I don't know that it's a huge problem. You're not adding that many new customers each year. So a lot of your losses relate to business you've already written before and are just renewing. You can, it, it's not very long tail stuff. Um, you realize the losses pretty fast within a couple of years, most of them. And um, you can renew it pretty quickly, change the renewals, like on a six month basis. So it's not the most dangerous stuff to write there and think companies like progressive and geico have a lot of experience with it still if you grow that business very fast you can see that the margin of safety is small right when you have high loss ratios and you have um a lot of premiums relative to equity you can run into problems really fast and there's a chapter in the book about geico and explains how serious it got and a big part of that is the regulators allowed them to write at a very high amount of premiums relative to equity. Most insurers don't write at anything like that. Some of the insurers we've talked about, um, like investor title insurance, like some things I've invested in the past and whatever, write at like one or two times premiums to equity. Uh, Geico going into their crisis was writing at like six, something like that. Um, so that those compound in a big way, those errors, if you have them. 
But of course, if you have good years, then you don't have a problem that way. And Geico was able to get out of it by trimming back the problem areas. That's the advantage of having a really low expense ratio, which is, you know, more of the, there's not much you can do about having an expense ratio that's too high. I was going to say, is it, do you think about insurance kind of the same way that you think about banking where there's a lot of cost efficiencies and stuff mm -hmm. like that goes a very long way? Yeah, there's a lot of similarities that way. And the problem with banking insurance, both, is you got the expense ratio. And so there's kind of two ways of doing things. Well, three. One, you could never have the expense in the first place, which is the best. And those companies that are born that way and just avoid all those expenses. Two is you could always be focused on cutting expenses, right? But three, the temptation always is, well, you know, there are economies of scale. So when someone comes to you, your department, and says, well, we really need to get this expense ratio we need to be more efficient you know um one way of thinking of it is well if we wrote twice as much business using the mm -hmm. same amount of employees mm -hmm. it would be a lot cheaper and that makes sense and it works but it, that assumption is often you can come up with a when you ask for a presentation on that the presentation will manage to show that the quality of the new business you're going to write is the same as the business you're writing already which seems unlikely because it's marginal business you're adding to it in any business when you say okay we're going to add another thing um then whatever you add tends to be of lower quality than what you already have mm -hmm. otherwise why wouldn't you be doing it now um and that is true in banking right so like if as a group all banks lend to some people who aren't in homes now mortgages then on average the pool of all mortgages must be a little bit worse off from that um same sort of thing uh with insurance and so that's the temptation right and that, but that the logic of when I mentioned the progressive thing, their logic makes a lot of sense. Targeting combined ratio combined with growth. And, and Geico's done stuff similar to this. It is very good for Geico and progressive and companies like that to grow. You want to do that, but you have to be very careful. They are growth companies and they're, they're successful now because they grew a lot in the past, but they have to be careful about their combined ratio stuff because with companies that aren't in financial services there's a lot of stuff in the real world that um determines how fast you can grow so i mean you can get away with it with more and more financial engineering you can franchise things you can lease things you can whatever but a lot of companies you actually have to make more product you actually have to sell more product and so there's a lot of stuff that slows you down as you go out and expand most businesses work that way um, you're not going to overexpand a series of car dealerships or something because there's so much capital involved in it. But with insurance and banking, to a significant extent, you can basically do as much business this year as you uh, are willing to do. Yeah, just printing more paper. Yeah, more I mean, autographs. there'll be demand at some price level, right? Mm -hmm. So at some level, I mean, auto insurance is a little different. There's going to be, it's pretty, um, you're going to take business from each other. Because everyone wants just one policy and they have to have the policy. But in general, you know, if rates are lower, let's take banking, right? If rates are lower, there actually will be more borrowing and more activity than there otherwise would be uh, backed by borrowing. If insurance stuff, if, um, if you didn't provide insurance for SPACs, there'd be less SPACs. I mean, you're actually having an effect on the real world that way by doing that but it's just by your promise of whether you will stand by this or not so because of that it's important that these can be growth companies but they have to severely limit their growth and be careful about it and they are really growth companies i mean um we talked about investors title insurance which is 
still borderline microcap, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's like that company's been public for more than 30 years. Uh, I think, yeah. So 30 years ago, they were writing, I think, $9 million in premiums or less than that. Um, they, they've grown at 11% a year for 30 years. And that's with paying some dividends sometimes or buying back some stocks sometimes, things like that. So, um, and not really adding to the amount of, of uh, equity they have from new raises or anything. So it gives you an idea. You can grow for a very long time that way. You can grow for decades at about 10% a year, um, be a growth company in a sense. But you, it's harder to do the 20 some percent growth. And we talked about that with Geico, right? Geico had, you were amazed at Geico's growth over a very long period of time, but it didn't necessarily have extremely high growth for a period of a year or two. What was it? It was 15% compounded over whatever it was. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that is because you retain all the business, right? Mm-hmm. For a lot of those, for things like Geico. Yeah, you've, ta- you've talked about that before, how sometimes companies, they start to really grow fast, but then when you kind of look under the hood, they were almost like buying business in a way because they cut their you know prices so much or something along those lines. So yeah. it's like, how do you handicap that? How do you judge the growth of an insurance company? Um, you know, you try to see if they can keep their combined ratio on average at a similar level. Uh, I think it's not a good sign if growth is speeding up at the same time the combined ratio is going up. I don't like to see that. Um, you can usually do things to figure out the number of policies they have versus premiums to get some idea of pricing. It's not a great idea of pricing, but it's some idea. Um, if they're in an, not that many different lines of business, it could be helpful that it actually indicates stuff. We talked about Universal. They were adding the same number of policies each year while um, revenues weren't really going up as fast as policy numbers uh, or were going up at the same, I should say. So that meant that there weren't really pricing increases. That matters because if I look back 10 years, you know, inflation is at least 2% a year. And I could guess that things like how many, uh, what was the value of homes was probably even higher, right? What was the likely amount of um, legal expenses and things probably higher than inflation, you know, guess those things. And yet here we have a company that had been adding um with you know lower than the rate of inflation right so if if it's showing policies up 10 percent a year at the same time as saying revenues up 10 percent a year well then there's not really price increases and you'd want to see price increases over a long period of time that at least are tracking inflation if you think it's a kind of business that's becoming likely that you'll have even bigger payouts right um but like individual years it's a different story you know that's a weather related thing so if i had seen losses for individual years that wouldn't necessarily bother me uh, even with a company like that, if um, it could have three bad years in a row, and some people that would be very scary saying like, okay, you had three combined ratios of a hundred something. But if it's a weather event, you know, Berkshire to mm-hmm. cat uh, reinsurance, that's going to happen. But that's different from a trend that's going to keep happening. And it's very different from something that you ignored, a trend that was happening that you ignored, you know? Um, that's, if you look at Berkshire's other insurance things, which are mentioned in this book and what they tried to do, their urban auto and things like that, some stuff that went badly, workers comp they did. Um, you can see that there's more trend stuff that are problems. A lot of it is more, um, misjudgment of people, misjudgment of people involved who are selling your product, misjudgment of the people running the insurance companies and misjudgment of the customers, you know, misjudgment of brokers in some cases and misjudgment of the customers that you're, um, uh, that are taking out these policies that you misjudge the kinds of risks that they are. 
in their life and financial risks that they're taking and all of that. You know, it's confused. It's, you know, writing stuff that's effectively like subprime lending and thinking that it's the same as the business you did before that was like prime stuff. You know, it's the same thing here. That's what happened to Geico. They were running preferred risk and then they moved into writing for everybody. And so it's a different population. Got it. Cool. National indemnity. One of the most important acquisitions that Berkshire made in 1967. He was also, if you listen to this part, this point in Buffett's life in the snowball too, this was the point in his life where I think Susie thought he would slow down. His okay. net worth was, I think she said, once his net worth gets to 10 million that you know he'll pull back right. a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So I think his net worth was around there, nine to 10 million at this point, which by the way, inflation adjusted is about 71 million dollars okay and yeah. uh he did not pull back so i thought it was interesting it's one of my favorite parts in the snowball 1967 yeah and it was able to grow a lot and if you see jacob does a breakdown of points of like where the assets were where the earnings were coming from within the first few years they shift dramatically from textiles to insurance because of um selling off some inventories and stuff at um at the um uh, textile mills but also buying national indemnity that made a big shift in capital allocation and they furthered that shift but within a couple of years of taking it over he made a really big shift crazy well i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with jeff and i here today on the focus compounding podcast make sure you check out all of our content go to focuscompounding.com for stock ideas follow me on twitter at focus compound and be sure to hit that subscribe button both on the podcast side of things and youtube People were commenting on my consistency for the intros. When I say like "welcome, welcome, welcome," yes, that's isn't yeah, that funny. People don't like that; it's too consistent. No, I, they, like I think they do they like do, it. Like I mean, it. I hope when people are listening, they're saying "welcome, welcome, welcome" with me. Okay, we had some complaints that you don't have to do it every time. What's that? I said we had some complaints you don't have to do it every time. Oh past. yeah, you're yeah. right. Somebody, and I said I'm consistent. Yeah, that's true. I do remember I'm, that. I don't know why it's a benefit to mix it up every time, but <laughs> no. We, we, I am consistent. Well, thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us. Hit that subscribe button. Check out Jacob's book. I'm going to put yes. the link in the Capital description. Allocation. Capital Allocation, Jacob McDonough. Follow him on Twitter as well. I'll put his handle in the description too. Thank you so much. We'll see you next podcast. Take care.